Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. The immediate context is chapter 14, in which Paul exhorted the two, shall I say, factions of the Roman church, those who were weak and those who were strong, to get along with each other. The weak being those who had scruples about things like working on Saturday or eating pork, things like that, doubtful things. And the strong were those who realized that God had made everything good. There's no problem with all that. So am I going to go ahead and exercise my liberty to cause my brother to stumble? No, don't do that. So that was the context of chapter 14. He's going to continue with that idea for a few verses in chapter 15. But I've decided to entitle verses 1 through 13 in chapter 15, We Need to All Get Along both weak and strong, Jew and Gentile, because the main theme here is unity. Unity in the body of Christ. Something that's very valuable, something that's very wonderful, and something that sometimes is hard to achieve. And the divisions in the Roman church were, as Paul has pointed out, the divisions between weak and strong, and also between Jew and Gentile. Now those two divisions might have overlapped a little bit, because who is more likely to be scrupulous about things? Jews who've been brought up under the law. You're not supposed to eat pork, but it's okay to eat pork now. Peter had a lot of trouble with that. God had to give him a big vision about eating dirty things coming down in the sheet before he could get over it. And even then he had trouble getting over it. He goes up to to Paul, what was it, in um, Antioch, I believe it was. Paul had to stand up to him face to face and said, you know, you're not eating with the Gentiles because they're eating pork or whatever they were doing. So this was a big constant problem in the early church is the, the division between Jew and Gentile, and Paul's going to deal with that in these verses here in verses 1 through 13. So we start in verse 1 and read verses 1 and 2. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So Paul starts out with the division between weak and strong. You notice he identifies with the strong faction because he says, now we who are strong, at least it's said, some people say that. He could just be referring to the whole church. Now we in the church who might be in the strong faction, he doesn't necessarily identify with the strong, but it sounds like he does. And he probably was strong because he was Paul. He probably knew Look at his writings in Romans and in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. When he deals about, about doubtful things, it's obviously he, he's not worried about eating idle meat and so forth. He's worried about making the weak person stumble. So we can assume that Paul is one of the stronger, in the stronger faction. He says, look, we have an obligation to bear, that means put up with, to endure the weaknesses of those without strength. And the weaknesses are those who think that it's wrong to eat shrimp or pork and that kind of thing or to work on Saturday. Now, I said that the strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Bear means not merely to tolerate, but to uphold lovingly, as the NIV Study Bible says. At least that's what Paul meant. I don't know if the word bear itself means that, but that's what Paul meant. Not just to put up with them and say, oh, you stupid Jews, you're going to be eating. If you don't want to eat pork, that's fine, but I'm going to get me a burger. Um, excuse me, a, a, a barbecue pork sandwich. And if you don't like it, that's just too bad. I, I'll, I'll put up with you not eating it, but I'm not really, I don't have a lot of sympathy for you. No, that's not what it means to put up with in that sense, to endure something like you're enduring a horse fly that's buzzing around your head and it's aggravating you. No, it means to uphold that weak person. In fact, we read in verse 2, each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
So the idea is not that we just put up with the weakness, but we build him up and try to explain to him why he is weak and why he is free to engage in something that's, that God has made and that there's nothing wrong with eating the pork or working on Saturday or whatever it is that the weak person's having trouble with. We build him up. But if he's not ready for it, you leave him alone. You don't look down on him. And, of course, when we talk about weaknesses, we're not talking about sins. We're not saying, oh, well, you're looking at Playboy magazine, you know, well, you're weak in that area, but we must tolerate one another. And, no, that's a sin. That's that's not eating pork or not or drinking wine. Here's a quote from John Gill talking about the duty we have to build him up, to build up the weak brother. The last phrase in verse 2 of Romans 15, quote from John Gill. It is a fact that a weak conscience is a failing The weak are a lot like physical babies that require extra consideration. The strong are called upon to be the adults in the room. The strong are to please the weak for his good, to build him up. The ministry of the strong to the weak is one of self-denial. So we don't eat pork, and then we try to convince the non-pork eater that it's okay to eat pork, as well as other doubtful things. Now notice what Paul says, that the strong have an obligation not to please themselves. That doesn't mean that Paul is advocating pleasure-denying asceticism, as the NIV Study Bible points out. No, it means you don't have the right to please yourself at the expense of your weak brother. It doesn't mean that if there's no problem with causing somebody to stumble, you go in your private house and whip yourself with a whip and don't eat pork and don't eat wine and, and that kind of thing. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. Romans 15, verse 3, Paul continues, For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written... The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now we're going to see how Jesus did not please himself. Paul quotes Psalm 69.9, which reads this way, Because zeal for your house has consumed me, that's David writing, and the insults of those who insult you, God, have fallen on me. So David says that people are insulting God, and that offends me. And I'm having to bear, because I identify with God, with Yahweh, I am receiving insults also when people insult God, and it's not pleasant. And so, of course, this is fulfilled in the New Testament because what Paul is saying that, hey, people are insulting God, and therefore the people that insult God, those insults are falling on Jesus. In fact, the me here in the in the Old Testament, the Homer Christian Study Bible in Psalm 69 does not capitalize me because that's referring to David, but when Paul's using it, it's referring to Jesus, and so the Homer Christian Study Bible capitalizes the me capital M, me. So the insults of those who insult you, God the Father, have fallen on me, God the Son. And that's how Jesus didn't please himself. He put up with a lot of abuse in order to serve the Jews. If Jesus had pleased himself, he wouldn't have tolerated the insults. He'd have gotten a couple of angels of legions down there and wiped out those people that were insulting him. There is a more direct scripture which shows directly that Jesus didn't please himself. Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to please himself. That's our example. Of course, Jesus is always our example. So, hey, how about don't try to please yourself when you're dealing with your weaker brethren? Here's some other examples of how Jesus, the example that shows the example of Jesus, how he didn't please himself. Second Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus lived the life of a humble carpenter, and in order to do that, he gave spiritual richness to those who believed in him. And his poverty might also refer to the fact that he he emptied himself of all of his divine prerogatives. Philippians 2, 5-8, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus 
who existing in the form of God did not consider it consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Death on a cross being, of course, one of the most humiliating deaths anybody could ever suffer, even for a criminal. And he was the Lord of the universe, had to suffer that way. So there's your ultimate example. He didn't please himself. If Jesus can do that for you, can't you do that for your weak brethren? Paul also followed Jesus' example, 1 Corinthians 10, 33-11-1. Just as I also try to please all people in all things, not himself, but all people, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Jesus didn't please himself. Paul didn't please himself. He didn't seek his own profit. We go to verse 4, Romans 15. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now, he says whatever was written in the past, that would include everything, including Psalm 69.9, which he just quoted. Psalm 69.9 was, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. He just quoted that in verse 3 of Romans 15, and now in verse 4 he says, whatever was written in the past, he's referring to that verse, Psalm 69.9, but of course it refers to all of the verses too in the Old Testament scriptures, but he was specifically referring to Psalm 69.9. Zeal for my house has consumed me, and the insults that have fallen on you have fallen on me. That was written in the past for our instruction. In other words, if Jesus bore the insults of people because he was trying to please other people, so can you. You can do it. You can bear anything for your weak brother. Everything was written in the past was for our instruction. That's what the Old Testament scriptures are for. You know, we're not under the law, but the Old Testament has lots of stuff like types and prophecies and wisdom literature, lots of stuff that have nothing to do with the law that is for our instruction. Paul, why was Paul, why did Paul say this here for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction? Well, it could be because somebody could say, well, you, Paul, you just quoted Psalm 69, verse 9, talking about, the, David is talking about the zeal of God's house has fallen on him and the insults of God have fallen on David. What's that got to do with Jesus? What's that got to do with us? That's the Old Testament. And Paul has defended that and said, well, now remember now, what's written in the past is for us in the New Testament. Paul also has the same idea in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things became examples for us. That's the thing that's talk, he was talking about, Israel going through the wilderness on the Exodus. Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did the Jews on the Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10:11. Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends, end of the ages have come. In other words, the New Testament age is here, and those things that happened to the people in the Old Covenant, that was an example for those on us in the New Covenant, on whom the ages, end of the ages have come. Now Paul says that once we see these scriptures about enduring insults for God and, and, and putting up with things that we don't like, so that we may have hope through endurance... In other words, it sounds like it's going to take a lot of endurance to put up with people, especially these weak Christians that are driving me crazy because they're saying that I can't eat pork. Well, we need the encouragement of the Scriptures, Paul says here. What was written in the past, the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures in the past, were written to encourage us to have hope and endurance, or hope through endurance. What is hope? Hope is not a mere wish, but a confident expectation of the future. Possibly Paul is saying, I have a confident expectation that God will work in the lives of the weak and make them strong. That's a possibility suggested by Steve Ackerson. Could be, because it's kind of hard to see why Paul put in this verse, talking about hope all of a sudden when he's talking about dealing with the weak. <laughs> so maybe he's saying, you know, 
I know this is hard, guys, but, you know, have confident expectation in the future that you're going to be able to get along with these weak Christians. And you're going to have to endure with them. You're going to have to put up with them. You're going to have to bear with them. Endurance, hope through endurance. I wouldn't doubt that because it's hard to get along with other Christians. What's that old saying? Oh, what a great thing to be with the saints in glory, but when you're here with them on earth, it's a different story. (laughs) I actually just looked up on the Internet to see what the difference between hope and wish the reason is is because after spending many years in China and listening to, listening to Chinese English, Chinese people constantly confuse the two words hope and wish. And they say wish when we would say hope, and they say hope when we would say wish. And I never could figure out what they were doing and why it was wrong. And they would say, well, why is it wrong? And I'd say, you know, I don't know. I can't figure it out. So I finally just looked it up this morning. It turns out that if you're talking about the future, a wish is something that you want, but there's very slim possibilities going to happen. Hope is something that it's not guaranteed it's going to happen, but there's a strong possibility that it will happen. Something that you want will happen. For example, I wish I could win the lottery. Well, that's the odds of what, one in five million or five billion? <laughs> you know, I wish I could do it, but I'm not going to win it. But I hope I get that job. I got a 50-50 chance. I think I can get it. I really hope I can. And I think my, my interview was strong, so I hope I can get it. Well, that makes sense. Notice how if you say... I wish I would win the lottery. You, the tense that follows the wish is in the subjunctive, which shows possibility. I wish I would win the a lot lottery. But if you use the hope, it's I hope I win the lottery. Use the present tense, which is not a, a tense of uncertainty. The, excuse me, a mood of uncertainty. It's a mood of of certainty. Whereas the subjunctive is a mood of uncertainty. I, I wish I might win the lottery. I wish I would win the lottery. So that's how that works. Now, if you're talking in the past, you always use wish. I wish you had been there. Something you wanted to happen didn't happen. So we're just talking about in the future here, and that's how Paul's using it, talking about the future. So it is a confident expectation of the future. Other uh, scriptures that show a connection between hope and endurance, because you have to endure the garbage in the present till you get to that nice result in the future. So endurance goes along with hope. Romans 12, 12, Paul says to the Romans, couple chapters previous rejoice in hope be patient in affliction rejoice in hope endure affliction is what he means first thessalonians 1 3 we recall in the presence of our god and father your work of faith labor of love and endurance of hope in our lord jesus christ so endurance goes with hope i mean i wish we could all have good things right now but that's not the way the world's set up right now it's afflicted with sin now when we get to heaven it's going to be a different story we won't have to endure anything in heaven we won't have to hope for anything in heaven because it's already there. But we're not there yet, so we have to endure. And if we endure, we'll have hope. And now when we get to how what Paul talks about overflowing hope in the last few verses in our section here, it's very encouraging. We go to verses 5, 6, and 7 in Romans 15. Now may, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another. Again, it sounds like it's going to take a lot of endurance and a lot of encouragement to get you to live with one another. That's how hard it is to live with one another in harmony. Live in harmony with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you, to the glory of God. Now, when Paul tells them to live in harmony with each other in verse 5, he does not mean that they're supposed to agree on doctrinal, non-essential doctrines, fundamental doctrines, of course they agree on, Nicene doctrines, if you will, but head covering, that kind of thing, eschatology, you know, you know, you can disagree on that and still live in harmony. But what he's referring to is 
live in harmony with regards to the doubtful things, whether you eat pork, whether you watch that movie or read this book or whatever, stuff that is not overtly immoral, where it's very clear, like adultery, hey, that's wrong, I don't have to analyze that. Whether whether you should pull for the New England Patriots in the NFL playoffs, I could argue that's immoral, but I guess I concede that, no, okay, that's a doubtful thing. So if somebody's going to do that, if they're going to pull for the Patriots, i got to put up with them. Now, Paul is not talking about doctrinal disagreements, and when it comes to doctrine, you put up with the non-essentials, and you absolutely do not tolerate violations of essential doctrines. That should go without saying. I will say this. The more that people can come to agreement on non-essential doctrines, the more harmony there is, because doctrine does divide, ladies and gentlemen. Don't pretend that it doesn't. I mean, I was doing a little house church one time, and doggone if we didn't have an infant baptizer. Now, how are we going to handle that? Everybody else is baptizing in water by immersion, and he didn't believe in that. So if, if, if it would have been a lot easier if he had believed in infant bapt- in immersion as he should have, but he didn't, and so there we got a problem. Then we had another problem about who's going to get baptized. One person thought that, oh, he wasn't going to show up for the baptism because this person that was getting baptized was already baptized in a previous time, and this was a rebaptism, and that violated his theological convictions. So if everybody had a clear mind on what baptism was, we wouldn't. Have, I personally would not have had this problem to have to work through. So yeah, you should try to get. You should try to study the Bible and talk to other people, learn it in the Scriptures as much as you can to get as much light as you can on the Scriptures. Because if you do that, you end up with more harmony, more truth, more harmony, not the other way around. Now Paul says. I want you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Jesus Christ. That command of is interpolated by the Holman Christian Study Bible. The actual Greek is according to Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean, live in harmony according to Christ Jesus? Barnes, Alfred Barnes, the commentator, says this means, quote, according to the example and spirit of Christ. His was a spirit of peace. And I think that's exactly right. And we know that Jesus, now that Jesus didn't tolerate Pharisees and injustice, but when it came to people loving him and people and accepting people, he, he ate with sinners, he ate with Pharisees, he treated women and children just like he treated the men. He practiced harmony, peace and harmony with amongst his followers. Now notice Paul says in these verses that if you do live in harmony, what will be the result of that? You will glorify God. God actually gets glory when people look at Christians living together in love, peace, and harmony because the world doesn't do that. It's something that's unusual and and causes people to take note. How many times have you heard of a testimony of people who were attracted by the love of Christ and say, I want that? I know I was. There was a little university Christian fellowship group, became a charismatic group on my campus at the University of South Carolina, and I was so impressed with how they loved one another. I said, I want this. I am so tired of the Vietnam War and the hippies and the drugs and the campus riots. I want peace. Not to mention my parents' divorce and every whatever else was going wrong. Not to mention all my romantic failures and all the nonsense that I, I was going through. There was peace, and I wanted it. I've got a good friend, same thing. He was a hippie selling drugs. He ran across an Assembly of God church, and the pastor took him under his wing, and they would go to meetings. He noticed how everybody loved one another. He says, you know, I want that. Fifty, sixty years later, he's still a dedicated Christian. So, yeah, let's glorify God. Live in harmony. 
with a united mind and voice. And again, that's united in love. That's not necessarily united on every little doctrinal point. Pre-trib, rapture, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill. Nothing wrong with talking about those things, but we don't cut fellowship off because of it. Therefore, accept one another just as the Messiah also accepted you. Paul says that again in Romans 14, 1, previous chapter, accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. Romans 14, verse 3, one who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does, because God has accepted him. God accepted, God accepts the person who is weak in faith, or actually this is the one who is strong in faith. God has accepted the one who is strong in faith. If he's eating shrimp, God's accepted him. So don't look down on that strong brother who's eating shrimp or eating pork. And likewise, you don't look down on the eat, the weak guy either. He said, in verse 1, he says, don't look down, except anyone who is weak in faith. And then in Romans 14, 3, he says, the one who does eat, don't criticize him because God has accepted him. So God has accepted the strong Christian in verse 3. He takes care of the weak in verse 1, accept him. He takes care of the strong in verse 3, accept him. This is a good time to quote Augustine's famous quotation, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now Paul says, accept one another, and he gives the ultimate example. He says, therefore accept one another, verse 7, just as the Messiah also accepted you. And basically his argument is this, look, if Jesus can accept a scumbag like you, is it too much to ask you to accept a pork abstainer? I mean, you know, that's pretty obvious. Romans 15, verse 8. For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. Now, what Paul is getting ready to do here, he's getting ready to tell the Gentiles, look, accept the Jews. He's going from the weak to the strong division. Now he's going to the Jewish-Gentile division. And he starts out by telling the Gentiles, accept the Jews. And he gives two reasons why the Gentiles ought to accept the Jews. First reason is, is, is that Jesus became a servant of the Jews on behalf of God, behalf of God's truth. So that's the first reason. Jesus became a servant to the Jews. And the second reason is Jesus confirmed the promises to the fathers. God made promises to the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the famous promises of land, offspring, and blessing. So let's look at the first reason why Jesus is why God has accepted the Jews is because the Messiah has become their servant. This shout out for the Jews helps carry out the theme that Paul had in Romans 11, that the Jews had not been cut off from the kingdom of God. There was still a remnant. He starts with that. And then also there's going to be future Jews grafted back into the olive tree, the kingdom of God. And so he continues with that same theme here. Hey, Jesus came to the Jews first. So you're going to look down on those Jews because they're not eating pork? The Jews were most likely going to be the weak party because they would be hung up on legalistic scruples. So as again, the, the distinction between weak and strong is sort of overlaps with the distinction between Jew and Gentile because most Jews would probably be in the weak party and most Gentiles would be in the strong party. The other way that we know that the Jews are accepted by God and that the Gentile and that the weak should that the Gentiles should accept the Jews was because of the promises made to the Father. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are very famous. I'm not going to go through the scriptures there. You can find them in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 18. Isaac was promised. The promises were repeated to Isaac in Genesis 26, and the promises were repeated to Jacob in Genesis 28 and Genesis 46. So these are very famous. 
We go to Romans 9. It's, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Now he is going to show that the Gentiles are the apple of God's eye. And so Jews ought not to look down on those Gentile dogs that they used to call dogs. No, now they're in the kingdom. And furthermore, Jews, your Old Testament scriptures predicted that they would be in the kingdom. So let's be easy on them. Verse 9 is in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up verse 8. For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So God was a servant to the Jews to confirm the promises to the Jews in, in verse 8, in order that, in verse 9, Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Now, what Paul is saying here is that all the good stuff that God did for the Jews had a purpose, it's so that Gentiles would glorify God because of God's mercy to the Gentiles, his forgiveness and his grace. So all that good stuff that God did for the Jews, it had a purpose to help the Gentiles. So Jews don't get be getting cocky. It wasn't just for you. It was also for the Gentiles. Now, Paul also could be pointing out to the Gentiles, hey, yeah, you're getting mercy, you're getting grace, but it wouldn't have gotten here if it hadn't been for those Jews who got the promises. And remember, your Lord served the Jews first, so don't, so don't be getting uppity about dealing with your Jewish brethren. But anyway, I, I think that most probably that Paul is, now he's switched to admonishing the Jews to accept the Gentiles, and not vice versa, not mainly vice versa. He's mainly talking to the Jews. He's, he's starting to give some examples in the Hebrew Scriptures of how the Gentiles were the object of God's salvation mercy. So the Gentiles may glorify God in his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing psalms to your name. Well, that's an Old Testament Scripture. Where is he right quoting from? Second Samuel twenty two fifty. Therefore I will praise you, Lord, among the nations, among the Gentiles. I will sing about your name. Psalm eighteen forty nine. Therefore I will praise you, Yahweh, among the nations, among the Gentiles. I will sing about your name. That sounds like a pretty close quote to what he says in Romans fifteen nine. I will praise you among the Gentiles that I will sing psalms to your name. So he's just quoting the Old Testament scripture when he says it's written. And of course the Jews believed the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and so Paul is saying, look, even your own scriptures talk about the Gentiles being causing praise. Even the Gentiles will praise God's name. The same God that you worship, the Gentiles are going to be singing praises to. Now, these promises to the Jews directed to the Gentiles, this is a, th a common theme of Paul. Well, first of all, it was in the Old Testament. Here's another scripture that shows how the Gentiles are going to be blessed by the promises to the Jews. Remember the promises to Abraham, land and offspring and blessings to the nations? Genesis 22:18, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your Jewish offspring because you have obeyed my command. And of course, the most famous offspring was Jesus. That's how the Gentiles were blessed. Galatians 3:6 through 9, Paul refers to this. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So here Paul says in verse 8, Galatians 3, that God would justify the Gentiles. And then he goes back and quotes the promise to Abraham, Genesis 22. All the nations will be blessed through you. All the Gentiles will be blessed through you. So this is a very clear theme of scripture. The Gentiles are blessed because of God's blessing the Jews. So hey, Jews, if the Gentiles are going to be blessed, why are you going to look down on them? And Gentiles, why are you going to look down on the Jews? If it wasn't for the Jews, you would be blessed. This is very easy to see where Paul's going here. We go to verse 10, Romans 15. Again, it says he's not finished. 
He quotes the Old Testament again. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32:43. Rejoice, you nations, concerning his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his adversaries. He will purify his land and his people. Now, this is interesting because Moses in Deuteronomy is telling the nations to rejoice concerning the Jewish people. Why would the nations, the Gentiles, rejoice? Because God's getting ready to avenge the Jewish people. He's getting ready to take vengeance on the Jewish people's adversaries who are Gentiles, who are the nations. Well, the only way I can see that the nations, the Gentiles are going to be blessed by what God is doing to the Israelites and establishing the Israelites is because eventually the, the nation of Israel is going to have the Messiah, the seed, and then from that seed is going to have a bunch of Gentiles believing in Jesus. But at any rate, the, the main point here is Paul quotes the first part of Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, you nations. Again, nations is Gentiles. So in Romans 15.10, he says, Rejoice, you Gentiles. Different translation. Nations is the same thing as Gentiles. Rejoice, you Gentiles. Rejoice, you nations. So Gentiles are going to be giving God praise. So don't look down on those Gentiles who are eating pork, you Jewish Roman Christians. Romans 15.11. Again, Paul's not finished. He quotes another Old Testament scripture showing that the Gentiles are accepted. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. All the people should praise him. He's quoting Psalm 117.1 there, which says this. Praise the Lord, all nations. And again, nations means Gentiles. Glorify him, all peoples. That's the Gentiles. So in verse 11, he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. He's quoting Psalm 117.1. Praise the Lord, all nations. We go to verse 12, Romans 15. And he's still not finished. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. This is a famous messianic scripture from Isaiah, the root of Jesse. And I'll talk about that, uh, that metaphor in just a minute. But the root of Jesse obviously refers to Jesus, the Messiah. He's going to appear. He's going to show up in Israel's history. And he is the one who will rule the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will have hope in him. Of course, ruling is a good sense. He, he's going to govern the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will hope in him. So even the famous Messianic scripture about the root of Jesse has Gentiles in the promise. Now let's look at that metaphor, root of Jesse. I've always been bothered by that because Jesse, of course, is the father of David. And, and we go through Jesse to David, then bop, 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 all the way down to Jesus. And so you would think that, that Jesus is not the root. Jesse's the root. Jesus is the shoot, the offspring. Before I get into that, though, let me point out, I didn't say this. Uh, Paul is quoting Isaiah 11:10 here. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will see him. Again, that's Gentiles. The nations will s seek him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, going back to the metaphor again, it seems like the metaphor is backwards because Jesus is the shoot, not the root. Well, if you think about it, this is how I explain this. Nobody disagrees that the root of Jesse is Jesus, but it's just the the metaphor seems inapt to me. But what happens is if you look at a root in a of a tree that's fallen down in the woods, it doesn't die because the little shoots will spring out from the root. So now if you look at the root containing the shoot and you consider the whole thing as one entity, you will say that's the root. But it's a root that has a shoot in it, and that shoot was Jesus. Jesse is the root. Jesus is the shoot. The whole thing was the root of Jesse. The root that contains, the root is Jesse and it contains the shoot, which is Jesus. So you look at the whole thing, you say, yep, so that's the root of Jesse. It's a little bit of confusing metaphor, but the meaning is clear. Jesus is called the root of David in Revelation 5, 5. Then one of the elders said to me, he said to John the apostle, stop crying, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And again, it's the root of Jesse which is also the root of David because it's all part of the same tree. 
The root of David has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. We go to verse 13. We'll finish up our section here in Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. So Paul says, not only do I want you to be filled up to the brim with hope, but then I want you to start overflowing with hope. And that's the nice thing about the gospel. This world world has very little hope. And a lot of people who have hope in salvation and money, sex, fame, whatever it is, drugs, their hope is always disappointed. But our hope overflows by the power of the Holy Spirit. It overflows in joy and peace as you believe in him. Of course, the more you believe in him, that means the more you have faith in him. The more you trust him, the more hope you have, the more joy and peace you have. He's probably referring back to the hope that he mentioned back in verse 5, which we already talked about, the hope that came with endurance and encouragement. He's also referring to the hope that he mentions at the end of verse 12, the previous verse, the Gentiles will hope in him, as he quotes Isaiah, the Gentiles will hope in Jesus, and Paul then says, yeah, and that's fulfilled in you, Romans. The hope of God can reside in you also. And remember, hope is the confident expectation of the future. We don't need to worry about what's going to happen in the future if you're a Christian, if you're a believing Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Romans 15:13. In the next section of Romans chapter 15, which we'll take up in the next audio, Paul continues his idea, his theme of trying to convince the Jews that the Gentiles are part of the kingdom just like they are, and he starts talking about how he is the apostle to the Gentiles and why he is the apostle to the Gentiles. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.